Hmm, what's geogram? I don't know. Maybe it's geogram? How about geogram with A-L Wix? Or is it Al Wix? Just call me Allie, and it's geogram. Welcome to Geogram, the podcast that combines the geography and grammar of the English language. I'm your host, fantasy and young adult author A.L. Wicks. On this podcast, we're filling in the map of the English language with a treasure trove of grammar rules and fascinating facts. You can always find the show notes and transcripts at ploppletop.com geogram. How many of you are looking forward to Friday the 13th? Everybody always told me that 13 was an unlucky number, but I've always had the best days on Friday the 13th, so I hope I can pass some of that luck on to you. In the gram section today, we're going to throw around a few terms and learn where lob, chuck, fling, and other throwing words come from. And what does Julius Caesar have to do with it? Then we'll get into the history of the game of hot potato and why potatoes were the perfect object for this game. Then I've got another news section. Something interesting has happened with Wattpad, and I don't think it's a coincidence with it coming on the heels of the Kindle Bella. All of that coming up. If you haven't already had a chance, you should go snag a free copy of the first two books in my children's holiday books series. Thanksgiving on a Sugar Bush is about Sadie and Albert, a brother and a sister who live on a sugar bush, which is a farm that raises maple trees and harvests maple sap to turn it into maple syrup. My second one in that series is a Christmas story called Wynn and the Welsh Mountain Sheep. It's all about sheep and cheese and finding ways to make ends meet as a family in a picturesque Welsh setting. Both are available under the free books tab at ploppletop.com. And now on to the show. Among the group of words that means to project or propel something, the word throw is probably the top of the group, and it's usually used in the definition of the other words. In today's nuance... If you fling something, you're throwing something without care for where it goes or lands, or perhaps scattering several somethings by flinging them about. If you pitch something, you're probably throwing it with a certain speed and with intentional aim. If you hurl something, it's being thrown up and out, and for some reason I see this one as either twisting through the air or landing with force. If you heave something... The sense is that you're throwing an object of great weight, sometimes not very far, depending on how far you can heave it. If you chuck something, you're throwing it with disregard both to the object and to where it lands. Its meaning is often related to throwing something in the garbage or bin, depending on whether you're in the United Kingdom or the United States. But we have to go back in time a bit, about a hundred years before throw came into existence in the English language. Back to the mid-13th century, we have two other words that made an appearance prior to the word throw, sling and cast. As you might guess, and as confirmed by the online etymology dictionary, sling the verb comes from sling the noun, the same noun thing used by young David to defeat Goliath. Of course, when the Bible was originally written, it was not written in English. From Hebrew, the Bible was translated into Greek in bits and pieces, large and small, and then to Latin and eventually to German and English. According to the online etymology dictionary, Middle Low German contained a word, sling, with an E on the end of it, that refers to the same implement for throwing stones. Several European languages have similar words, such as the Old Norse slingva, 
that sounds very similar and refer to the same thing. So I thought it was likely that there was a Proto-Indo-European word at the root of them all. And according to the Indo-European lexicon from the Linguistics Research Center at the University of Texas at Austin, there is. The etymon is slank, spelled S-L-E-N-K, and it means to turn or to wind. This perfectly describes the way a sling with a rock or other object in it is swung around the head until one end is released at a certain moment and the rock flies out. I always think of Ernst in the 1960 version of Swiss Family Robinson using a sling to throw badly aimed stones at Roberta to distract her. That's just kind of cool to see him do it. The word cast is also known from about the mid-13th century. It is strongly linked to the phrase, the die is cast, which is an idiom taken from the throwing of dice in a game with the outcome dependent on how the dice settle or land. And it was famously said by Julius Caesar when he crossed the Rubicon River, which led to the Roman Civil War, which resulted in Caesar taking over as dictator and the Roman Republic being turned from a republic into an imperial state. This is actually where we also get the saying crossing the Rubicon, which basically means the same thing as the die is cast. You've gone past the point of no return and there's no turning back now. The casting of the dice is that moment between when the dice leaves the person's hand and when they settle and show what the outcome is. Merriam-Webster's dictionary states it concisely, quote, The die is cast is used to say that a process or course of action has been started and that it cannot be stopped or changed. Of all the throw words, the word cast has been transformed from its single original meaning into a litany of meanings and phrases. And I use the word litany because the list is so long that if I were to tell you all of them, you'd probably tune out before I reach the end of them because it's that extensive. So we'll just focus on a couple of them to really give you a sense of how this word has evolved. If you cast something down, you've thrown it down. You throw, drop, or pour a liquid into a mold or form, which also has become known as a cast. The object inside a cast would come out with a certain appearance, depending on how it was heated or what its mineral content was or its coloring, and its external appearance has become known as its cast or shade. And of course, the way a person speaks can be shaded with certain hues of meaning or a certain cast in the manner of speaking. And of course, depending on one's manner of speaking and appearance, the different roles in a play will be cast into the hands of different actors and actresses, creating the cast of a play depending on the cast of one's words and appearances, which seems to make it a double cast, which means we should probably end it there with the many meanings of cast. But I hope you get the idea. Before we move on to our next throw word, though, I wanted to make a quick note regarding the word dice, which is the plural form of die. To be grammatically correct, you would say the dice are white because you could replace the dice with they. They are white. But if you're talking about one die, you would say the die is white because you would replace the die with it since it's singular. It is white. I wanted to point this out because more and more people are using the word dice to also mean a singular die as in we only need one dice for this game. Perhaps people don't really like using the word die in this way because it, it is a bit awkward for English speakers since to die also means to no longer be living. Something has died. In any case, the word dice is becoming more and more commonly used as both the singular or plural form, kind of how sheep can mean one sheep and it can also mean a whole flock of sheep. However, if you want to use die and dice correctly... I have two ways to help you remember which is the singular and which is the plural. 
First, the word one has only three letters in it, the same as the word die, O-N-E for one and D-I-E for die. The number two only has three letters in it too, but the second letter is a W or two U's, so a total of quote-unquote four letters, the same as dice. That one's a bit of a stretch, so here's a second way. The word dice has an S sound in it, and an S is added onto the end of many English words to make them plural, such as books or cups or dinosaurs. So even though we don't add an S on the end of the word dice, dices is not a thing, it already has an S sound in it, so you know that dice is plural, but die is singular. I hope that helps you remember the difference. We finally made it to the main word of the moment, throw, which made its appearance right around the beginning of the 14th century, or the beginning of the 1300s. Samuel Johnson's dictionary references the Latin word tornare, which means to turn, as an influence in the formation of the word throw, but the online etymology dictionary states that it comes from a Proto-Indo-European root, tere, though it has the same definition, to turn or to rub. So I can't say for sure exactly where throw comes from. Besides being the most common usage today of this group of words, throw has lent itself to many sayings, including to throw away, meaning to lose an opportunity or to spend something without receiving the same value in return. To throw down, as in throw down the gauntlet, meaning to issue a challenge or to ready oneself for a fight. To throw up, as in throw up my hands, meaning to resign oneself to a situation or to give up in a difficulty, though it's also used to refer to vomiting, of course. To throw off, as in to throw them off the scent, meaning to confuse. To throw out, meaning to reject something, from a court ruling to a piece of furniture. And to throw under, as in throw under the bus, meaning to betray or be deceitful to one's friends. Now we come to fling, launch, and hurl, which all come from sometime in the 1300s. And we'll also mention hurdle because it's been confused with hurl almost from the moment both words had been in use. According to the online etymology dictionary, fling likely comes from the Old Norse word flengja, which is itself of unknown origin. The throw definition of fling comes from a few decades later in the mid-14th century. The verb fling gave rise to the noun fling and led to sayings such as to make a fling, meaning to attempt something, and to have a fling at, meaning to try something, and to fling out, meaning to become unruly. My favorite, though, is the past participle of fling from Middle English, flungen. Launch ultimately comes from the Latin word lancia, which was a light spear, and the throwing of that spear led to the old French word lancier, and ultimately to our English word launch. Hurl carries a sense of a very forceful throw, which makes sense considering that one of its early definitions was something that was rushing violently. Hurdle, spelled with a T and not a D, hurtle, is similar in sound and definition, but hurdle is distinct in that it means to crush into or to knock down. So let's distinguish between hurl and hurdle. An object that is hurled can end up hurdling into and knocking down or through something else. And to do that, the object would have had to have some weight behind it. So a cannonball can be hurled into the air and end up hurtling through a castle wall, but a spear can be hurled into the air, but wouldn't really hurdle against or through anything because it doesn't have enough weight to do so. The next one in our timeline is pitch. The oldest meaning of pitch referred to the wood tar substance that was used to seal wooden ships. 
its throw definition showed up around the end of the 1300s. And if you're counting, that means that seven out of our 11 throw words were in use in close or to the exact same way we use them more than 600 years ago. So these are pretty old words. If you think of a tent, which has been used as a dwelling structure, at least from the time of the wandering Israelites in the Bible, the pitch of a tent could refer to either the angle of the tent or the steepness of the sides, or it could refer to pitching something and thrusting it into the ground as when a stake is driven into the ground to hold a tent into place. Which one came first? It was actually the second, thrusting a sharp something into the ground to fasten it down. And it comes from an old English word that is related to prick. A sharp stake being driven into the ground being equated with a sharp needle being thrust through fabric. We don't use pitch in that way anymore other than to say we need to pitch a tent, meaning to set it up. But the idea of thrusting a stake has translated to tossing something not just into the ground anymore, but at a specific spot or target, from pitching hay into a hay wagon to throwing a baseball. For our next two words, chuck and heave, we jump forward 200 years to the 1590s. Chuck is related to chalk, spelled C-H-O-C-K, which has two meanings. The first is to give a blow under the chin or to punch someone with sort of an uppercut. The second is a variant of chalk, which is related to block, and so we get a chuck of meat chopped on a chalk or a wood block. It makes sense then that a chucklehead means the same thing as a blockhead. We still use chalk and chuck interchangeably when talking about something that is very full. For example, the gym was chock full of seventh graders, or the bus was chuck full of band students and their instruments. Our next one is heave. Heave comes from the old English word Haben, which means to hold or to possess, according to the online etymology dictionary. That is why heave is related to the word have, as well as to the word heft, which means to lift something. Sometimes you heave something to send it out and away from you by throwing it, though sometimes you heave something toward yourself by hauling in a rope, perhaps to a heave-ho chant used to keep shipmates in rhythm with each other so their efforts were maximized when they all pulled at the same time. A loft has been known as an upper room or an area of a building since the 1300s, but its sense of hitting or throwing something skyward didn't come until the 1850s, with the term originating from the game of golf. Eventually, to hit something aloft meant to send it up to the approximate space of where a loft would be. Now we move on to the word lob, which seems to have a connection with loft. The word lauba, meaning roof or attic, comes from Old High German and is referenced in the etymology of loft but not of lob, though it does seem to indicate that loft and lob have similar roots. In Samuel Johnson's dictionary, published in the 1750s, to lob was to let fall in a slovenly or lazy manner, with the example of someone's head lobbing down as they fell asleep. By the late 1800s, lob was either a noun that referred to a throw or a hit of a ball or a war implement, such as an artillery shell, or the action that made it happen, whether it was with precision or not. Next time you chuck something in the bin or fling off your backpack or jacket after a long day, now you'll know that people have been doing the same thing for over 600 years. I just wanted to take a quick moment in between our two educational sections to tell you that we have a Patreon set up for this podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash geogram, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-e-o-g-r-a-m. 
Even if you only pledge a dollar a month, that will help us make sure we get this podcast really rolling and as high quality as possible. As a homeschooling teacher mom, I'm hoping there will be lots of parents who find this to be educational value for their kids and themselves. I hope that even my small news briefs of the book world will be interesting and informative to kids. It's never too early to help your little entrepreneur learn a bit of business lingo. Another way you can help us get a good start is to leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. And thank you. With all this talk about throwing things around, what came to my mind was the game of hot potato. Where did it come from? And why has it turned into a political term that's thrown around like an overused idiom? It's probably impossible to figure out when the game of hot potato was first played, but the game was first named around the year 1800. There are several variations on how to play this game, but in essence, an object is tossed from person to person as quickly as possible so as not to get quote-unquote burned for a set amount of time or until the music stops and whoever is caught holding the hot potato is out. A hot potato is a particularly good object for a literal playing of this game because they hold heat for a very long time due to their high water content. The term political hot potato first started being used right around 1930 and jumped in use around the 1980s and again in the early 2000s. A political hot potato is a subject that no political candidate really wants to talk about because it's a sensitive topic with seemingly no middle ground or safe position. Perhaps it's something controversial or an embarrassing topic. Anything that is difficult to deal with or to discuss is a political hot potato. It could be anything from the state of your English grade that you'd rather not discuss with your parents to the decision of a local planning community to put in a roundabout instead of a stoplight. Hot potatoes can come in all shapes and sizes. On the docket of book news today, we've got Wattpad and Navar, and a few thoughts about their connection to the recent rollout of the Kindle Vela. The news about the South Korean company Navar acquiring Wattpad is pretty intriguing to me. Wattpad has had massive growth and numerous changes since its earliest days. I remember getting on the website a few times, and it was nowhere near as nice as it is today. You might think, well, of course it looks nicer. We're a few years on from that. But I can tell you that there are websites that still basically look the same as they did 10 or 15 years ago. And some of them do a good job at what they do, but they're just a bit clunky and outdated. Wattpad isn't like that. It has grown and it's changed with the times. They brought on funding. They've expanded their readership and writership into the millions. They created Wattpad Studios to get some of the most popular stories on their website uh, turned into movies and TV shows. And they launched paid stories. As far as company innovation goes, Wattpad really is in the top handful. From being a platform where people wrote fanfic to obtaining funding from investors to creating sources of revenue for themselves and the writers who post on their platform to creating Wattpad studios and partnering with big names like Hulu and Netflix and Sony, they've been pretty strategic about how they've navigated a a sometimes tricky marketplace. Which is why I think this next move actually still surprises me a little bit. I would have thought it would be more likely for Wattpad to acquire Navar than for Navar to acquire Wattpad. It's pretty clear that Navar is hoping that some of the Wattpad readership, which is approximately 85 million, will gravitate toward their Webtoon platform. And of course, the news of this is very interesting, coming on the heels of the announcement about the Kindle Vela, which is essentially, in my opinion, a way for Amazon to compete or 
to try to dominate and demolish, possibly, Wattpad and other fanfic sites. Amazon seems to be pouring a lot of money into Kindle Vela without it having any decent revenue at the moment. It took Wattpad years to get the user base that it has, but Amazon is probably hoping it has a leg up because of its readers who are already on Kindle, especially the, the Kindle Unlimited subscription program. And Amazon is already creating hundreds of videos and series of its own original programming. So it seems that they're trying to become kind of a, a one-stop shop with a monopolistic share of the entertainment market. But let's go back to Wattpad for a minute. I want to point out the ingenious business model that they've been using for years. Take, for example, let's, let's compare them to one of the big five publishing companies. Or are we down to the big four now? I think we're down to the big four. Has Penguin Random House completed their acquisition of Simon & Schuster? So I just looked it up, and the acquisition has been cleared to proceed, but I think they need one more clearance. Anyway, so think about those big four or five companies. They have dozens or hundreds of in-house acquisition editors whose main job it is to go through the slush piles or through proposals and to figure out what they think the market will like, and then they have to get their authors to write it and their editors to edit it fast enough to meet the market demand for something while the demand is there. It has really become more and more impossible for them to do that with um, the tastes and the trends in shifting so quickly across the U.S. and the world in the book market. Then you compare that to a company like Wattpad. Some of the stories on there have risen to the top, becoming favorites of thousands or millions of readers. And then they've gone on to be turned into film or TV shows, which brings in even more money. And who found those stories? How did they get to the top? It was thousands of unpaid readers who were just doing what they love to do, but at the same time, giving incredibly valuable feedback to the platform and showing clearly what was popular and wanted at the time. So not only did they show what was the best, there was no guesswork there. The readers decided for themselves what they liked and wanted and supported it. I wrote an, an article a while back called Readers Are the New Weeders, and this is exactly what I mean. They're weeding out what they don't like and showing what they do. And in my opinion, big conglomerates like Penguin, Simon, Random House, Schuster, I, I, they're, they're not the same company and I, I have no idea what they're going to make their name, but Penguin, Random House, slash Simon, Schuster, and the others like it, they're going to find it harder and harder to compete in the marketplace, especially since Wattpad has the most valuable form of advertising built into its system, which is word of mouth advertising. That's not really something you can beat. If one user likes a book, they tell another and then another and another, and it can spread very quickly. And Wattpad is designed to do that on the platform amongst all their readers. So by the time a book or series has risen to the top on Wattpad and there's a deal to get it published or made into a movie, there are already a lot of readers who are excited to finish the series and to watch the movie. And Wattpad's output to find those gems of books and stories and series is tiny compared to a big publishing company who is plodding along in the old school way to find books and stories by paying thousands and thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars to their acquisition editors to try and find something that they think is good that may suit the market. So many writers used to dream of being published by the big five or big four, but in my opinion, that era really is fading fast. If I were to invest in a publishing company, I'd put my money in Wattpad and not Penguin, Random House, Simon Schuster. The amount that they spend just to find, acquire, and publish one book, it's just unsustainable. And I, I would love to get a, a look behind the scenes at their finances and figure out what the cost per book release is. 
let alone to promote it and make it popular. It just feels like such an impossible way to do business when you have a competitor like Wattpad doing publishing and media productions in the way that they do. Now, back to the Navar acquisition of Wattpad. I can definitely see where they converge and how it is very likely that readers, some readers, will move over from one platform to the other and vice versa. And they both have roughly the same number of users and creators or writers, give or take a couple million. Yet the type of cartoons on Webtoon in general tend to appeal to a very specific audience. There's a huge variety of story types told through the Webtoon comics, but if you click through the different genres, you'll see that the Manwa cartoon type, which is very South Korean, is by far the predominant form of cartooning on Webtoon, with nothing really that looks like traditional American comics. With more of a narrow scope or trend on Webtoon, this is why I say it would have seemed more likely to me that Wattpad would acquire Webtoon and put it under a category of manhwa cartoons while starting to encourage further cartoons to be uploaded to its platform than for the narrower focused Webtoon to acquire Wattpad. Either way though, the whole point is that it does seem like this merger is a good move for Wattpad and Webtoon to stay one step ahead of Kindle Vela and to have the resources they need to compete with Amazon. All right, I wanted to share a new section called What I'm Loving Reading. I just finished the book, The Third Door by Alex Benayan. I honestly have mixed feelings about it. It was really good to see someone succeed in business after making so many mistakes. And it was, it was a lot. But working at it so hard and he put so much heart into it, uh, it was pretty cringy at a lot of moments, but it did make me feel that if he had made that many mistakes and still succeeded in what he was trying to do, and he learned so much at doing it, I could succeed at what I wanted to do too. So it it is inspiring in that sense. However, and this is a big caveat, I would not recommend this as book as an audiobook for kids or teens. And I listened to the audiobook version, which I listen to almost entirely audiobooks because as a busy mom and a homeschooling mom, I don't have time to sit down and read a book very often. Uh, usually I'm writing if I'm sitting down. But um, I would not recommend the audiobook for kids or teens because there are a handful of F-bombs and S-words in it, which he does not edit out and he hasn't changed. On the other hand, it doesn't contain anything sexual or suggestive that I can remember. Uh, and I usually remember those things pretty pretty good. So if you're comfortable with buying the book and just blacking out the swear words in it, it's actually a pretty decent business book that I think could inspire kids or teens. It really is disappointing because without the swear words, which he could have at least tamed down and still gotten the same point across, it would have been perfect for kids and teens as well as adults. Coming up next time, the four sentence structures and the four sentence types found in the English language. Why is this an incomplete sentence when carry on is not? Implied gesture fills the word gap. Quotes and sayings or mottos or slogans, what do they do for us? Until next time, finish a book, leave a review and pick up another one. You can find me on social media as ALWix or the ALWix, or you can reach me at ALWix at protonmail.com. If you'd like, you can also write to my publisher, Ploppletop Publishing, at contactus at ploppletop.com, and thanks to them for their support. Please take a moment to give this podcast a five-star rating and subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. Our theme song is Time for Supper by Golden Age Radio. 
All other music and sounds are from Epidemic Sound. If you're unable to find this podcast on any podcast app, please drop us a line and let us know so we can make sure it's as widely available as possible. Transcripts and show notes, including links to all news stories and research I reference, are available at ploppletop.com slash geogram. And thanks for listening.